and welcome to Royally Screwed. My name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're continuing and concluding the story of the Third Crusade. Last time, we looked into the rise of Saladin, the Ayyubid Sultan of Egypt and Syria. He was a man who quickly rose to the ranks and used the ever-changing power balances of southwestern Asia to solidify himself as the leader of a new political dynasty and champion of the Muslim world. His crowning achievement was the successful siege of Jerusalem in 1187, taking back a city the Europeans of the First Crusade had seized from Muslim control nearly a century before. Pope Gregory VIII then called for a new crusade to begin. The Third Crusade was originally championed by the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa until he drowned on his way to the Crusader States. That meant Europe needed a new champion to carry the mantle of leader. Taking Barbarossa's place will be two men, though we'll really only be focusing on one, King Richard I of England, more commonly known as Richard the Lionheart. When you think of crusade leaders, you probably think of Richard the Lionheart, if you're someone who thinks about the crusades, that is. He was a symbol of Western European and Christian strength, the perfect match for the Middle Eastern and Muslim Saladin. In this episode, we'll learn about how Richard rose to power and how he'll use that power during the crusades, but we'll also learn what will become of Saladin after his grand victory in Jerusalem. It's a story for the ages as two great rulers engage in war and eventually find out that they admire the strength of their respective opponent. So without further ado, let's continue the story. Instead of Southwest Asia, we're picking up in the mid-12th century of England in Of God and Glory, Part 2, The Lionheart. <laughs> In the last background history lesson, we learned a bit about the First and Second Crusades. One of the key locations for both of those crusades, and obviously the Third Crusade, was the city of Jerusalem. But we never actually covered the history of that city, so that's what we're doing now. We'll mainly focus on the lead-up and its transformation into the Kingdom of Jerusalem, but there's plenty of background that we'll need as well. It's a large city with ties to all three major Abrahamic faiths, obviously there's a lot of groundwork. Like many large cities, artifacts of civilization can be found in the city dating back thousands and thousands of years, pre-Bronze Age, circa 5th millennium BCE. We'll skip ahead a few thousand years from there. Eventually, the city became the central hub for the Hebrew people and the Jewish faith, especially with the construction of the first temple attributed to King Solomon. Fast forward again, and the city is taken by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar II, only to be freed and given back to the Hebrews by the Achaemenid Persian king Cyrus the Great. Fast forward again again, and Jerusalem is conquered by Pompey the Great and becomes a part of Roman Judea. After revolts in the 1st century CE, the Roman Emperor Hadrian expelled the Jewish population and turned Jerusalem into a purely Roman colony. From there, the city gets big for Christianity because Jesus spent quite a bit of time in the city before being crucified outside its walls. The city gained more of a Christian influence with the rise of the Byzantine Empire as a Christian nation, with Jerusalem being very much within its circle of influence. This was around the 4th and 5th centuries CE. Now the city held religious significance for two major religions. 
then, in the 7th century, is where things start to change. According to the Quran, the Prophet Muhammad went on a journey that lasted a single night, traveling from Mecca to a location called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, meaning the farthest place of prayer, where he was eventually brought to heaven to visit. Even though it is not given a specific location in the Quran, the Al-Aqsa Mosque was believed to mean Jerusalem, and it's been called that in later Islamic writings. In 637, Arab forces under the command of the Rashidun Caliph Umar ibn al-Khattab laid siege to Jerusalem and subsequently captured it. Now, Jerusalem was under Muslim control. For about three centuries, Jerusalem became a melting pot for the Abrahamic faiths. The Rashidun and later caliphs later allowed the Jewish population to practice their faith in Jerusalem after being forced out by the Romans. However, things changed with the rise of the Fatimid Caliphate out of Egypt. The Fatimids destroyed all of the Christian churches in the city, and when the Fatimid Caliphate began to collapse, the Seljuk Turk dynasty swooped in to lay claim to the region. With harsher conditions for Christians, it was only a matter of time before the Vatican decided it was time to restore Christian power in the Middle East. Jerusalem was captured by Christian crusaders in 1099. They quickly founded the Kingdom of Jerusalem, with the city acting as the capital of the new Latin Kingdom. Although the Catholic Crusaders were actually still a minority among the Jewish and Muslim populations, they held all the power. And they would remain in power for almost a century until the arrival of Sultan Saladin. Would the Christians ever manage to get the city back? And if so, who would lead them to that victory? Richard was born in September of 1157, usually recorded in Oxford, England, to King Henry II of England and his wife Queen Eleanor. Eleanor was the former Queen of France, her husband being King Louis VII, until they became estranged during the Second Crusade and eventually annulled their marriage. She then married King Henry II. She was also the Duchess of Aquitaine, a region in western France, throughout her marriage to Louis VII and up until her death. Also up front, despite being known as a King of England, once he was crowned King in 1189, Richard only spent a total of half a year in England before his death. By the time of his death, he was known as King of England, Duke of Normandy, Aquitaine, and Gascony, Lord of Cyprus, Count of Poitiers, Anjou, Man, and Nott, and Overlord of Brittany. Basically, King of England and Western France, with Cyprus thrown in there for good measure. In 1170, King Henry II named Richard's older brother, Prince Henry, as his heir and king-designate, essentially co-ruler. This wasn't an uncommon move, obviously a king wants to ensure the dynasty is secured early on. Unfortunately, Richard's older brother was not too keen on waiting for dear old dad to kick the bucket in order to have his own solo time as king. He wanted the crown now. He decided to separate himself from England and sought aid from King Louis in France. It didn't take long for Richard and his younger brothers Geoffrey and William to join Henry the Younger's side. This was in 1173, and yeah, if you're doing the math correctly in your head, Richard is only 16 at this point, obviously ready to fight a war against his dad. Well, things were tougher in the Middle Ages. Some historians believe that the sons of Henry II were encouraged to revolt by Queen Eleanor. While in France, Richard was then knighted by King Louis. The brothers' revolt against their father would ultimately fail, and their mother was imprisoned for her alleged rule. 
Richard begged his father for forgiveness and was eventually pardoned for his role in the revolt, as were his brothers. From there, Richard started pursuing a more militaristic position as a prince. He moved to Aquitaine, where he was already duke by birth, and quashed a rebellion of the local barons with brutal force. He was even able to secure a castle that had once been thought impregnable. But to counteract all that great military might was his intense persecution of his foes, with ruthless imprisonment for men and forced prostitution for women. The 1180s proved to be a big decade for young adult Richard when his older brother Henry died in 1183. His brother Geoffrey would die three years later, leaving Richard as the new heir apparent for the throne of England. Finding himself in a position similar to where his older brother Henry had been 13 years before, Richard decided that, hey, maybe Henry couldn't defeat dear old dad, but I'm built different. So yeah, he decides to revolt against his father once again in 1188. This time, Richard and his younger brother John, who had been too young during the last revolt and yes, is also the King John from the Robin Hood stories, allied themselves with the new King of France, Philip II. Queen Eleanor, who at this point was out of prison but still under constant watch, so basically not free, once again supported her son's attack against their father. Truly proving himself different from his brother, Richard and his allies defeated King Henry II, who would end up dying shortly after Richard's victory. Richard agreed to many terms for Henry's surrender, including giving Aquitaine to his younger brother John, but refused to follow through with any of them after King Henry II's death. And with his father's death, Richard was crowned as Richard I, King of England. All was just as he wanted. Well, until everyone remembered that there was a crusade going on in the East. So, Richard wasn't actually the one who had pledged England's assistance to the Third Crusade. Henry II had vowed to fight, in this particular case also called Carrying the Cross, until Richard and Philip II decided to revolt. Oddly enough, Philip had also been considering getting involved with the Crusades before going to war with England. Anyway, it was Richard's father who actually believed in the religious side of the conflict. He would fight for the good of Christendom and reclaim the Holy Land. Richard wasn't necessarily interested in fighting for the glory of God, but he was interested in fighting. He was a fanatic when it came to a good bloody conflict. And what greater war was there at the moment than the one against Saladin? But first, he would need to raise money for a solid army to take on that of the sultans. And what better way is there for a king to get money than to tax the heck out of his citizens? Even before Richard had been crowned, Henry II had instituted a set of taxes called the Saladin Tithe. This proved very successful even if it was no doubt unpopular among the citizens. However, it still wasn't enough as Richard quickly emptied out those funds to begin amassing an army. He then decided to start selling political positions and pieces of land to the highest bidder in order to raise more money. He even released the King of Scotland, King William I, from vows of subservience in return for a large sum of money. I'm not sure if this is apocryphal or not, but there's a quote attributed to Richard saying, I would have sold London if I could find a buyer. Making final preparations, Richard set up another army to protect his land in western France. 
Richard and Philip had agreed to carry the cross together mostly due to the fact that neither wanted to leave their nation open to an attack from the other. Even with that promise, Richard was still wary of losing the lands he actually cared about, meaning France, not England. In late 1190, Richard was finally prepared to set off for the Third Crusade. The kings of England and France decided to go by sea, since apparently if you took the land route like Frederick Barbarossa, you were liable to drown while bathing. Along the way to the Crusader States, Richard decided to take charge in the Mediterranean Sea. You see, he had a score to settle with the new king of Sicily. Richard's younger sister Joan had been married to the previous king, William II, aka William the Good, and side note, son of William I, aka William the Bad. When William the Good died, his cousin Tancred claimed the throne and imprisoned Queen Joan. Richard and Philip arrived in Sicily in September, with Richard demanding Tancred release his sister from her imprisonment and immediately give her the inheritance she deserved. Tancred eventually released the former queen but refused to offer her any monetary compensation. Richard decided he and Philip would stay in Sicily, a move the King of France really wasn't cool with, until Richard's demands were met. The people of Sicily were very uncomfortable with English and French troops occupying their nation and revolted against the foreign armies. Richard, warmonger that he was, retaliated by sacking the city of Messina in October. This only further harmed the relationship between Richard and Philip. It would not be until March of 1191 that the turmoil in Sicily was solved when Tancred signed a treaty with the two foreign kings. Richard's sister would receive her rightful inheritance. Also, Richard and Tancred agreed to the marriage of Tancred's daughter to Richard's nephew, Arthur, who Richard also named as his heir. And another kind of bizarre thing happened in Sicily. You see, Richard was supposed to marry Philip's sister, solidifying a stronger relationship between England and France. However, Richard's mother really wanted him to marry a woman named Berengaria, a young noblewoman from Navarre, a region that occupied land in both modern-day Spain and France. Well, Richard decided to call off his engagement with Philip's sister so he could marry Berengaria. But oh man, Richard had set off on the crusade before he could marry his new fiancée. Well, no problem there, because Richard's mother and fiancé decide to meet the King of England in Sicily for that perfect springtime Mediterranean dream wedding. With things finally seeming like they were settled, and with Philip and Richard's relationship at an all-time low, the English and French armies finally once more set sail for the war against Saladin. Later in April of 1191, a storm raged in the Mediterranean and wrecked the English ship carrying Joan and Berengaria on the shores of Cyprus. And wouldn't you know it, they had been kidnapped by the Byzantine king of Cyprus, Isaac Komnemnos. A month later, Richard and the rest of his army arrived in Cyprus. A similar venture to Sicily played out. Richard called for the release of his sister, his wife, the remaining English prisoners, and all of the treasure that had been on his ships. Isaac refused until Richard once more decided to wage war against a Mediterranean king. He captured the city of Limassol, gaining an upper hand in the fight. Around the same time, several kings from the Crusader states arrived in Cyprus, chief among them being King Guy of Lusignan, the king of Jerusalem before Saladin captured his city. 
Now, if you remember from last episode, we left Guy as a prisoner of Saladin. So, how is he now on Cyprus, ready to join Richard's fight against Isaac Komnenos? Let's quickly backtrack. In 1187, Guy was taken hostage after his defeat at the Battle of Hatten, aka Saladin's big victory that paved the way for his siege and capture of Jerusalem. The next year, Guy's wife, Queen Sibylla, begged the Sultan to release her husband. Saladin, being the overall chivalric guy that he was, agreed to Sibylla's pleas and released Guy, where he joined his wife in the city of Tyre, the last Christian stronghold in the Middle East, only to be denied entry by its ruler, Conrad of Montferrat. In 1189, after months of trying to live outside the walls of Tyre, Guy decided he needed a victory and laid siege to the city of Acre. A lot of other things happened, such as Guy losing his kingship to Conrad, but we don't have time for all that. Looking to make sure that the incoming crusaders still viewed him as the true leader of Jerusalem, once again, he actually wasn't, Guy got word of Richard's exploits in Cyprus and left the siege of Acre to join with the English king. In June, with Guy's help, Richard's army conquered all of Cyprus. Isaac surrendered under the promise that Richard would not imprison him in iron chains. Being the cunning jerk that he was, Richard made the chains out of silver. The prisoners were freed and the treasure was secured. With the conquest of Cyprus, the Crusaders gained a very strong supply depot in the Mediterranean, and the island would continue to stay in Crusader hands until the late 16th century. But now, it was finally time for the Lionheart to join the mainland fray. On June 5th, Richard's army, greatly expanded in size, set sail for Acre. Let's back up a smidge to talk more about the Siege of Acre, because, spoiler alert for a 900-year-old historical event, it's kind of the only big victory the Crusaders will actually get. So, in late August of 1189, Guy marched on Acre with plans to retake the city Saladin had captured during his grand conquest of the Middle East. His plans initially relied on a swift and hopefully deadly surprise attack. Well, the surprise attack strategy didn't completely work out, which led to Guy beginning his siege of the city. Soon enough, Crusader reinforcements began arriving by sea which helped bolster the Christian side. Upon hearing about the growing Christian army attacking Acre, Saladin gathered his army and started marching towards the fortified city. In mid-September, the Christian and Muslim armies clashed. Saladin's hopes to end things then and there were dashed, and the siege continued on. In early October, Saladin rerouted his forces and positioned his army so that the Crusaders were sandwiched between his soldiers and the walls of the city. Even with this grand strategy, the Crusaders were still able to push forward due to more reinforcements that had arrived in the previous weeks. They fought back a significant portion of Saladin's soldiers, killing many in the process. But then the Crusaders decided to plunder whatever they could find among Saladin's dead, leaving them open to another attack from the Sultan's army. Saladin's forces rained down hell upon the Crusaders, destroying any gains they had just made. The siege would continue on, with neither side making any further ground. The siege continued throughout all of 1190. The Crusaders began upping their game with further reinforcements and the introduction of siege engines. 
Siege engines can come in many forms, but they are all types of structures and devices that are used by an army to break through city and castle defenses. These can be massive battering rams, long-range ballistas and trebuchets, or even siege towers, a mobile tower that allows soldiers to get close to walls and climb up to the top without risk of enemy attacks. Unfortunately, Saladin's army had Greek fire. I could easily go on a massive tangent about Greek fire because it's really cool and its history is insane, but it's essentially a flammable liquid fired at high pressure that could even continue burning when on water. Needless to say, it is very useful against wooden siege engines and human bodies. It was only when Frederick Barbarossa's army, or at least the very few that continued on after the Emperor's death, arrived in Acre in late 1190 that the winds of Crusader victory thought about beginning to blow. Saladin's army had grown to massive proportions, making it almost impossible for any more Crusader reinforcements to arrive. Unfortunately for the Sultan, the armies of Philip and Richard wouldn't be arriving by land, and the Crusaders were beginning to make gains within the harbor around Acre. King Philip's armies finally arrived in April of 1191, and Richard would arrive a couple months later in June after his conquest of Cyprus. With their presence, victory was all but assured. The Christians would end up taking Acre for one very important reason, the disjointed nature of the Muslim world. The entirety of Christians in Europe and the Crusader states were able to band together to the cause. Philip had been able to grab further reinforcements from the Republic of Genoa in Italy. Frederick Barbarossa, before his death, had been able to rally further troops outside his empire. Richard had turned Cyprus into the perfect supply stop just before the Middle East. But when Saladin needed assistance during the Siege of Acre, he found it very lacking. The Crusaders were terrorizing Acre with their blockades in its harbor, preventing Saladin's ships from bringing in supplies to the city. When he called upon the Muwahid Caliphate out of Morocco, they refused to send ships. Later, his own nephew would leave the fight to start his own military raids further north in Turkey. The Crusader force was now around an overwhelming 25,000 soldiers. Richard and Philip once more began the practice of siege engines. Richard had two massive trebuchets with the world's greatest names, Bad Neighbor and God's Own Catapult. But originally, Richard did not seek to make immediate war with Saladin. Yeah, that's a crazy thought after everything he's done up till now. He called upon Saladin to meet to discuss peace, and Saladin actually agreed. However, both Richard and King Philip would get sick, meaning that the agreement meeting could never take place. So the siege and constant battling continued. By early July, the citizens of Acre realized things were going very poorly for them. Richard had just completed the construction of his siege engines, and the walls of Acre were paying the price for attempting to stand against him. On July 4th, the people of Acre offered terms of surrender after the Crusaders had destroyed a wall the previous day. However, Richard rejected Acre's terms. Three days later, Acre sent word to Saladin requesting him to make one final grand attack against the Crusader army. On July 11th, Saladin made an attempt to bring hell to Richard's army, but to no avail. The next day, July 12th, 1191, 
Acker once more offered the terms of surrender to the Crusaders, and Richard, who had very much taken the lead by this point, agreed to meet with Saladin to discuss the city's fate. Okay, I say Richard agreed to meet Saladin, but neither man would actually attend the meeting. In fact, now would be a great time to throw in the fact that Richard the Lionheart and Saladin never actually met in person. They sent letters and envoys to each other, but they were never in the same room. Never met on the field of battle to go one-on-one -on -one in a grand duel. Saladin accepted Acker's surrender to the Crusaders and withdrew his armies from the city. The Crusaders had won. In a display of victory, the Crusader kings hoisted their nation's flags above the city. Among the Crusader leaders was a man named Duke Leopold of Austria. After Barbarossa's death, Leopold began to think of himself as the representative of the Holy Roman Empire. When he made to raise the flag of Austria, Richard stepped in to stop him. What was Leopold, a mere duke, doing to try to make himself seem equal to a king? The Lionheart had the flag of Austria removed from the others and tossed into the moat around the city. Needless to say, the Duke of Austria took this very poorly. I'd like to assume in that moment he vowed to get his revenge on Richard and thought of a plan that will come into play later. So now, Richard was on bad terms with both Leopold and Philip. Doing great, my dude. Luckily for Richard, Philip needed to leave the crusade in order to settle matters on the home front back in France. With Philip gone and Guy of Lusignan off to begin his tenure as King of Cyprus, Richard was now left as the sole king of the crusaders. Surely this was fine, right? Well, remember how he had treated the people who had rebelled against him in France? In an infamous incident, Richard decided to play judge, jury, and executioner with the prisoners taken hostage after the siege of Acre, aka the population of the city itself. He felt that Saladin was delaying things he had agreed upon with the surrender of Acre, such as his hopeful reclamation of the Relic of the True Cross. In August, Richard ordered for the deaths of over 2,500 Muslim prisoners. This was in stark contrast to the way Saladin had always treated Christian prisoners. But now with the game changed, Saladin responded in kind and killed all of his Christian hostages. Acre had been settled, but the crusade was not yet finished. In September, the crusaders and Saladin's army would clash at the Battle of Arsuf. The Crusaders had left Acre and were headed for the city of Jaffa, hoping to reclaim it and use the city as a base for a later expedition to recapture Jerusalem. Richard would once more lead the Christian army to victory against Saladin. The Muslim army retreated, giving the Crusaders the freedom to continue to Jaffa. By November, the city was theirs. They were now in a strategic position to complete the main goal of the Crusade, take back Jerusalem. But things quickly began falling apart soon after. The leaders of the crusade were split on what sort of path to pursue. Hugh III, Duke of Burgundy, and leader of the French armies in King Philip's absence made the argument to pursue Jerusalem. It was mere miles away and the ultimate goal. Richard was not keen on making a beeline to the holy city. 
In Richard's mind, the Crusaders could easily besiege Jerusalem, but the losses they had sustained up till that point meant Saladin could lead a counterattack, one which Richard thought would be a fatal blow to the Crusaders. Richard's plan was to march the army south into Egypt and take out Saladin's main supply depot. The arguments back and forth became so severe that Richard outright refused to lead the Crusaders if they marched on Jerusalem. Months passed without any major battles occurring. During this time period, Richard and Saladin continued to remain in correspondence with each other. It's probably in this time where the two men, despite pushing each other to their limits in terms of military might, began to see the other as a worthy adversary. It was also during this time that Conrad of Montferrat was officially crowned as King of Jerusalem, only to be killed several days later on April 28, 1192 by the Order of Assassins. Morale was dropping, on both sides actually. Saladin recaptured Jaffa only for Richard's army to immediately reverse that gain, and Jerusalem was still not yet won. The Third Crusade was beginning to fizzle out, and almost everyone seemed to be able to notice it. Richard began to worry about problems back home. He figured that King Philip and his brother John were making plans for the throne of England and desired to put that to rest. In September of 1192, representatives for Richard the Lionheart and Sultan Saladin met in order to negotiate ending the war. There would be a three years truce between the Christian armies and Saladin's armies. Saladin would keep Jerusalem under Muslim rule, but Christian pilgrims would be allowed to enter the city. The powerful crusader fortress of Ascalon would be destroyed, but the European and Christian populace would gain a strip of land around Acre that was theirs to control. And thus, the Third Crusade came to an end. It was a brutal conflict that ultimately ended without the Crusaders regaining control of Jerusalem. But hey, they could always try again and get it back with a later Fourth Crusade. Spoiler alert, they didn't get it back in the Fourth Crusade. Now that the story of the Third Crusade is over, let's find out what happened to our main players. Saladin, despite often being viewed as winning the Third Crusade because he was able to protect his capture of Jerusalem, did not get long to bathe in the glory of victory. About half a year after the peace was negotiated, on March 4, 1193, the great Sultan Saladin passed away. The general consensus is that he had grown physically weak due to a life of constant war. The centralized structure of the Ayyubid dynasty quickly disintegrated as his sons each divided up their father's lands. Nonetheless, Saladin would remain immortalized among both sides of the Third Crusade. He had been the protector of Islam he had always set out to become, and his penchant for justice and magnanimity made his European enemies view him as someone who upheld the laws of chivalry. As for Richard, well, things were a bit more complicated. He left the Middle East in October of 1192 only to be shipwrecked on the Greek island of Corfu. The local Byzantines were not too happy that the King of England had recently captured Cyprus, so Richard was forced to disguise himself as a Templar knight in order to sneak off the island, only to be shipwrecked again in Italy. Richard then decided that the ocean was a no-go and continued home via Central Europe. 
Okay, so remember Duke Leopold of Austria, the guy Richard disrespected after the siege of Acre? Well, after he went home to the Holy Roman Empire, he convinced the new emperor to have King Richard arrested. So when Richard passed through Vienna around Christmas time, he was soon thrown into prison under the accusation that Richard had ordered the death of Conrad of Montferrat, Leopold's cousin. Well, imprisoning a crusader was a crime in the Catholic Church, so the Pope excommunicated Leopold. Whoops. In March of 1193, only a couple weeks after Saladin's death actually, Richard was moved from a prison in Vienna to Trefels Castle in Germany. Oddly enough, the Pope did not excommunicate the Holy Roman Emperor, much to Richard's chagrin. He was ransomed for 150,000 marks, around several million US dollars in modern currency, which happened to be the same amount England had raised for the Saladin tithe years earlier. That amount had forced insane taxes on the citizens of England, and Richard's mother was more than willing to see that done again in order to free her son. The amount was raised and Richard was set to be released in February of 1194, almost two years after his original capture. King Philip of France and Prince John, Richard's brother, conspired to bribe the Holy Roman Emperor to keep Richard until the Christian Feast of Michaelmas, the Feast of the Archangels, in September of that year, but the Emperor declined the bribe. Upon returning to England, and in order to solidify himself as the king, Richard underwent a second coronation in April of 1194. He immediately set off from England to continue his favorite pastime of living in France and waging war. He would rule for another five years until, in March of 1199, Richard was hit in the shoulder by a crossbow bolt. The wound would develop into gangrene. When Richard demanded that his attacker be brought before him, many historians record that it was a boy around 10 years old. The boy told Richard that the King of England had killed his father, so he planned to kill Richard in revenge. Richard was so taken in by the story that he demanded the young boy not to be killed, though some historians insist that the boy was later put to death. Richard's wound grew worse until he passed away on April 6th of that year. Since he had no legitimate heirs, and despite naming his nephew Arthur as his heir, the throne of England would pass on to Richard's younger brother John. And that concludes our story of the Third Crusade. Was it an entirely pointless conflict that only led to the deaths of thousands and further exacerbated the bad relationship between Christians and Muslims? Yes. Was Richard essentially a killing machine who was only king because his older brother died before him? Yes. Richard was barely king of England because he was almost never in the nation and probably never spoke English, instead speaking French and Occitan, a romance language spoken in southern France and Spain. Was Saladin an extreme conqueror who helped overthrow a caliphate and basically led to the own destabilization of his own empire upon the death due to his constant warfare with the other caliphates? Yes. Many things about this story are frustrating. But that doesn't mean it didn't make for one hell of a story. I'm glad I got to research it and share it with all of you. 
maybe we'll cover another crusade one day. I did skip past the first and second crusades after all, though I chose to cover the third crusade because the actual faces behind it were more interesting. So let's close it out with this. People all over the world are different. We have different backgrounds, speak different languages, have different religious beliefs. But that doesn't mean we need to attack each other because of those differences. Yes, you may be different from me, but we are both human beings. And that means more than anything else. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're trading the Crusader Saga for the Julio-Claudian Saga as we return to Rome. In our story, Tiberius is about to become Emperor, but let's learn a bit about his background as a famous military leader first. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 